Namaste good evening to all of you. Tonight, let us continue in our satsang with the story of the actions, words, and teachings given by Jesus while we try to extract from this account, we try to extract what is relevant from a yogic standpoint, what is relevant in yoga. <laughs> so, in the last paragraph which we discussed and where we left it, Jesus has talked extensively about John the Baptist, proclaiming John the Baptist as the greatest man on earth because he was related to him in the way of his mission, because this man was preparing for the mission, preparing for the mission of Jesus, and at the same time he had the humbleness to step aside. He had the humbleness to let go and even to recognize Jesus. It's true, he had his doubts, he must have had his doubts, because he did not just proclaim, oh, that man, Jesus, is he sent his disciples to Jesus and he says, are you the one like, you know, he needed a word. He needed a word of encouragement of some sort. So he had, he asked the right questions and he did the right thing. And then he showed that human beings react adversely to wisdom in the last paragraph, which I read last time, because he said, John the Baptist came as an ascetic man, he was living in the desert and doing all those things. And everybody said, oh, he's demonized, he's demonized, he's too much. And then Jesus came and he said, I'm not doing uh, desert asceticism, I'm living with people in the cities, I'm eating, drinking, you know, I'm socializing. And now you tell about me that I'm a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of the tax collectors and a friend of the sinners, and so on. And therefore, he says, he concludes with a great sentence, where he says, wisdom is proven right by all her children. The children of wisdom. Wisdom is proven right. He says, either you have funny ideas about John the Baptist, or you have funny ideas about me, wisdom is the one that laughs last is the one that has the last laugh. Wisdom is the one which is proven right simply by the existence of the children of wisdom in this world. So he gave uh, an account where he said, well, you don't recognize John the Baptist. We see that not long time after this episode, John the Baptist was arrested by the one of the local kings and then he was put to death. And people didn't make a revolution because John the Baptist was put to death. So people didn't really care. When Jesus was put to death a couple of years later, also people didn't make a revolution because of that. And therefore people had other things to do. And therefore Jesus is a little bit dismissive. You know, he says, if one stays in the desert, you say he is demonized and he is too much. If one is eating with people 
and uh, no, then you say that he is a glutton, and so on. He says you cannot evaluate; you are not evaluating properly these things. Yeah. So um, the episode continues. The chapter continues, where it says that Jesus was is anointed by a sinful woman. This is the episode which the Catholic Church slowly, slowly, didn't do it in the 10th century, much later, slowly, slowly, they came to this. They came to identify this woman from here with Mary Magdalene. Because Mary Magdalene appeared, apparently appears in some three or four episodes of the regular Gospels, and in some of them she is not named by the name. But some theologians and so on, they have said this is the same woman from chapter 2, and so on and so on. So, these are debatable things. With this we go in the field of theology, and it is not my interest in a satsang of yoga to comment on things from theological science, unless they can give some very special clarification. So, the episode says like this. Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Uh, it was a custom, you know, obviously high scholars, they appreciated Jesus, some of them. Some of them felt very provoked by his authority, but some of them, they were interested and they said, this man is too much, this man knows too much, this man is too strong, he speaks so authoritatively, so they wanted to hear him more, to discuss with him more, and um, so he went, and he also, it's interesting, that's really interesting, because he says he reclined at the table. I don't know if you have seen historical movies, but in the Roman Empire, when people went to big banquets, they were eating, reclining, and they were reclining on the left shoulder for two reasons, one visible and one invisible. Like people were lying down on one elbow, like semi-reclining, a little bit like the Buddha, like the reclining Buddhas. Um, the people were reclining always on the left side for two reasons. The visible one is this. When you stretch like this, you stretch your stomach and place it in a favorable position. And therefore, you can eat uh, in a more relaxed way. Some people who are gluttons, they can eat more. So it's a position which enlarges your stomach, and you can eat more. And then, of course, as somebody knows, in the Roman Empire, some they were going and vomiting, and then eating one more share, because they enjoyed so much the act of eating. The second uh, reason for this is that they always reclined on the left, and this is opening the right nostril. When you spend 20 minutes on the left elbow, this is opening, the opposite nostril is opening. And for example, in Svara Yoga texts from India, it says that you should always eat only when you breathe through the right nostril. Because when you breathe through the right nostril, you have more fire and you have the capacity to deal with the food in a more solar way. And uh, therefore, so interestingly, the Romans, either knowingly or intuitively, they had discovered this thing, that eating lying on the left side, reclining to the left, 
was making a difference. So it's funny that it says that even about Jesus, it says they rec he reclined at the table, which means either they had taken this habit from the Romans or the Jews themselves were knowledgeable and it was something in the antiquity which several nations in that area were doing. That's not so very important. It just came to me that I'm telling you about this thing, that eating, reclining on the left side, which was a traditional story. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume, and as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. This is a wonderful story in a way, because this woman is uh, reproducing a very special ritual. The Jews were washing their feet, or when they had a very special honorable guest, then they were washing the feet of the guest. Uh, the Jews, in those days, they were sitting in their uh, halls on a sort of a mat, like a tatami mat from Japan, a rug of some sort. And then on the same mat, they put the food, like the bread and other things, they were put there. So it was a very, very bad thing that you would have dirty feet and put the dirty feet on the mat and then the food on the, the, food on the same mat. So there was a sort of elementary hygiene rule, first of all, that you wash your feet. When you go inside a house and you prefer to sit on a mat, you wash your feet so you don't put dirty feet on that. But then when somebody was very honored, then sometimes the host would say, may I wash your feet? It was like a sign of extreme respect. This woman... She did not really wash the feet because she did not come with water. But she had this reaction of crying. I don't know how many of you have been in a process of really repenting for something. Like doing something which was not necessarily very nice. And then at some point changing your life. And when you change your life big time, one thing which will happen is that you will start crying. And it is, it is not a crying from uh, hysteria type. It is a crying which comes from the heart. It produces a certain, <laughs> a certain reaction in the area of the heart. And um, this is happening often for people who are at the crossroads like this. And obviously, for this woman, they had come, the time had come. She had had a life which we are told, told here that she had a sinful life. We are not told, but probably it's not that she was stealing money or something. Most probably, she was practicing prostitution. And somehow the time was up for her. She just needed this little spark to make her change her life. Enough was enough. She was close to some crossroads and then she sees Jesus. 
and she feels like I want to see Jesus and then in the moment when she sees him physically she breaks. In the movie of Franco Zeffirelli, Jesus of Nazareth, this kind of reaction <coughs> of two, three people who were in the presence of Jesus and Jesus touched their hearts, this reaction is very well depicted by the director of that movie. It's a well-known thing that people sometimes when they reach to this break point, first reaction is to cry. So she cried and the tears fell on Jesus' feet. She was probably holding his feet and crying, having this reaction. And then metaphorically, this was as if she was watering his feet, as she was washing his feet. It was not a proper washing of the feet, but as you will see, Jesus says, it's, it's more beautiful than if she washed my feet. Because what she did is that it came from her heart. It's something which came from her real heart, and that's a hundred times more amazing than if she just brought some water and did. That's an act of politeness. It's an act of social politeness in the society of those days, of course. But for this woman, he saw the break point. He saw the moment when that woman, something broke inside her. And basically she said, okay, my life has taken a big turn now. And after she uh, did this, she said, oh, bummer, sorry, sorry, Jesus, you know, I, wa I watered your feet, you don't need wet feet. And what would she do? She was not prepared. She didn't have a basin. She didn't have a towel. She didn't come there to wash Jesus' feet. And then she used her own hair and wiped his feet clean, you know. Like, uh, see, the heart gave her a sort of a spontaneous inspiration, you know, like she acted spontaneously. And metaphorically, somehow things fitted. She he washed, she washed his feet, she dried up his feet, and then she poured perfume. She had come to offer the perfume. These perfumes which are used in the Middle East, it's the same perfume with which Jesus was anointed when he was dead. People were using it for anointing the bodies of the dead. And these were mixtures of rare plants, and some of them were very expensive. For example, this funeral balm and so on, it was a mixture of aloe vera, and aloe vera is a bit of a more common plant, but in this aloe vera, they were macerating very strong perfumes like nard, myrrh, and other very strong plants, very rare plants. So one of these uh, vases, one of these jars, was expensive, you know, it's like somebody would come today and pour on your feet a bottle of one liter of Chanel number no. five or something like this, you know. It would be like, whoa, you know, like this costs a thousand dollars, this costs uh, two thousand dollars, like, you know, it's like it's, it's very, it's something out of the normal. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, so he was just thinking, he was witnessing the scene, and he didn't know to stop it, not to stop it, what will Jesus say, and so on. And he says, if this, he was 
just saying, if this man were indeed a prophet, for the Jews a prophet was supposed to have some form of clairvoyance, reading the souls of the people, it actually has not been always true. The game of God is so complex that there have not been two prophets just like each other. Every prophet, every spiritual person has had different spiritual gifts. So you cannot say that to all the prophets, the biggest condition was that they were supposed to see the future or see the past or read people's hearts or see their auras or uh, there were different things. The prophets are of many different kinds. But this guy, this is how he figured. And he said, if this man were a real prophet, he would know that who is touching him and what kind of woman she is and that she is a sinner. And of course, Jesus was aware of the thoughts of other people, was aware. I'm here in a meeting where most people are men. This guy is a high-level scholar, a Pharisean, as they are called. It was the sect of the Pharisees, a form of Judaic uh, mystics. You know? And this man called me because he wants to talk to me and he wants to see if I'm the real deal. You know, he wants to exchange ideas with me. So this is a pretty serious meeting. And in this serious meeting suddenly comes this woman who turns everything emotionally. She doesn't know shit about theology or anything, but she cracked emotionally and she cries and she's, you know, she's bringing some typical female chaos in our meeting, which is pretty scholarly and intellectual. So he is aware that everybody is like, um, um, like, what is this? You know? And on top of it, he can see from her clothes that she is not the regular housewife of some dude from the village. Because she was probably dressed more sexy, more expensive, more elegant, more something. You could see, maybe there are other things which we don't know. Maybe the women who are prostitutes, they are not braiding their hair. And all the others, they are keeping their hair in braids or something. Like, there must have been some differences. So, of course, Jesus knows that this woman is from the caste of the prostitutes. And the scene is a little bit awkward because everybody was there for something else with something else. So Jesus is obviously aware, like, I know what these people are thinking. No? And so Jesus answered to him. Jesus immediately knew and he didn't let him verbalize because this man spoke in his mind. You see, sometimes people say, oh, so Jesus was reading his mind. Really, honestly, I don't consider myself a mind reader and I can do this eight times out of ten. Not because I'm a mind reader, but because after a certain time of experience, you approximately know what to expect, especially if a peculiar event <clears throat> occurs, you approximately know what people are thinking. You know, And you say, please don't... Uh, think anything bad about it. You know, there's, it, it reminds me of the famous uh, story with a French king or a British king who invented the famous order of the jartier or whatever, of the garter, whatever it's called, 
and it happened because he, he was dancing. They were having one of these stupid French balls or British balls or whatever. And he was dancing with a woman who he liked and who was like his concubine or something. And while they were dancing, this woman had a garter which was holding her stockings and one of her garters fell down. And the king, very gallant, stopped the dance. He bent over and he took the garter from the floor and gave it to her or put it on his chest. And then he said the famous French expression. Everybody who is French know will know that because it's famous in the French folklore. In English, it's a bit more funny to translate, so it didn't become so popular. But in France, he said, Oni qui mal y pense. Uh, shame on the one who thinks bad about this. Like, you know, the king bent over and took that horse garter and put it in his pocket, you know? Like, it's a scene of deprivation. But the king says, no, I'm doing this like a gentleman, like a man of honor, like the woman was dancing. Her garter fell down, and we finished the dance, and then she will go and arrange her... Uh, clothes and so on and he said don't think badly about it don't be pigs in your head don't think bad in a similar way you know so did the king of france was a mind reader or or a prophet no he approximately knew what people in the room would think so you don't need to be a prophet about it. it's not that jesus they claim it here you know like this man was thinking in his thought and then jesus answered but it's pretty easy to realize where the minds of people is going in such weird circumstances. And Jesus then told him, Simon, this guy was called Simon, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said, you know, like now the lesson was coming. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owned him 500 denarii and the other one 50. Neither of them had the money to pay back, so they, he cancelled the debt of both. Now, which one of them will he love more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt cancelled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. I hope you, under, you can follow, right? So you owe me, one of you, 300 and one of you, 550. And I say, what the heck, I know you don't have the money, keep it. Keep it. You are forgiven. Keep it. So I forgave one of you for 300 and I forgave another one of you for 50. So Jesus says, to whom did he do more love? And Simon answers correctly. He said to the one to him forgave, to whom he forgave 300 because that's a bigger debt. Like he was much more compassionate to the one with 300 than the one with 50. Some could say, you know, the one with 50, I can forgive him easily, but the 300, that's big money, brother. You know, it's like, you know, forgiving you of 300, it uh, seriously affects my own accounting and so on. So he's okay. He did a favor, a bigger favor to the man with 300. And Jesus calls that love. Because in the Jewish tradition, they had this thing which today is very seldom applied, and even when it is being applied, it's applied in very dirty and tricky ways. The Jews in the old days, they could lend money and do something, but they were required that every seven years, all the debts should be forgiven. 
Like really, it's like you play Monopoly. It's not real money, you know, like you owe me some money and you know, and then you know, we all know that in a village, there is an idiot who will borrow too much thinking he's going to make a great business. And of course, he will bite the dust. And there is some other phantasmagoric idiot. And there is one who smoked too much marijuana. And there is one who... And they will do all sorts of financial things. And in the end of the day, they will bite the dust. And then, I don't know, your Israeli friends can tell you who created those laws. If they come from Abraham or from Moses or from which one of the great prophets. But the Jews, inside their own community... They did a very incredible thing. They say, play the game of life, borrow money, take the money back, borrow money, take the money back. And every seven years, it's like we stop the game of monopoly and all the debts are canceled. Like if you could not pay me back in seven years, you can never pay me back. Which means you are a weak person, you are a loser. Maybe next time I will think twice before borrowing you some money. But right now you are off the hook. Yeah, the debts are forgiven. It was a very healthy habit. Unfortunately, this habit was cancelled. Because it included in it the possibility of usury, of charging interest on the money. And charging interest on the money is one of the most criminal things that somebody can do. Theoretically, in Christianity, one of the first things which came economically is no usury. That's why in the William Shakespeare play, The Merchant of Venice, that's exactly one of the things which they bring up, that there were some people in medieval Europe, in that play, they say some Jews from Venice, but it was not only Jews. There were other people who were doing exactly the same dirty job and they were borrowing money. They were lending money with interest. And this interest is killing the world. There are banks here and there in the world today. Most of them are Muslim banks. Like there is an Islamic bank in Thailand as well. And in the world, if you borrow 50,000, you give them back 50,000. They may charge you 500 for the processing fees and administration, but they do not charge percentage. They do not charge usury. It's forbidden by the Quran and the Muslims still stick to that. Because this thing with lending money, uh, it, it was like, you know, I, it comes from this example, and I know I'm deviating a little bit, but it's a very important thing to understand. It is a thing which sucks the world dry. Starting with the time of Jesus and finishing with great people of the 20th century, like Thomas Alva Edison and others, like I'm talking about great thinkers, all of them realized immediately through simple mathematics that usury is just a way of stealing money. And I'm going to give you the example which comes from William Bramley. William Bramley, an author of some books of conspiracy theories and so on, he gives a beautiful example. 
and I will take time because it's in the spirit of Jesus and Jesus often talks against dirty money and this kind of thing and this is where you can see how it comes. In an island there is a village. They are the only people on that island. It would be like the community of Thais which was here a hundred years in Kopangan. There is a number of people on an island. They are more or less isolated from the rest of the world. And there comes a guy and that guy comes and says he discovers that these people have no money. When somebody has 10 apples, he sells them and he gets 10 eggs. They do barter. They do just natural barter, but they don't have money. And this guy, who is one of the future bankers, he has the spirit and he says how primitive uh, trade and society must be moving so slow. How, how do you live without money? And the guy says, money, what's this? <laughs> and he says, wait a second, I'll show you in a second. He gets a big piece of leather and he starts cutting round things, coins. Coins, but not made of metal, made of leather. He stamps them, he does something to make them unique. And he produces, let's say, a thousand coins made of leather. And he said, look, one of these coins of leather is worth ten apples and it's worth five eggs. And all of you can have them. And when somebody wants to give you something, you can just exchange these coins and you don't need to bring a produce in exchange. And then later you can buy with that money the produce and so on. It makes things go much faster, which that's what you learn in school today, that that's the trick with which money is introduced in the society as a symbol of value, which makes things move much faster. So he says... Anybody can take what they want. But he says, I'm new in the village. You guys have land, animals. I am a newcomer. I am a, you know, and uh, I also need to earn a living in your society. If you receive me in your village, I'm the one who created the money. <clears throat> so I also deserve something for my effort. So he said, we do it like this. If you borrow 10 coins from me, I give you 10 coins. You use them the whole year, and in the end you have to give me 11. I have to make a 10% also, so that I gain something, because otherwise I don't gain anything. And the people in the village were happy to try. So one took 10, one took 20, one took 50, everybody as much as they thought they need. And then they did trade, and they did things, and so on, and then the end of the year came. Can you see where the problem is? They borrowed from this guy a thousand coins. And after one year, they had to give him 1,100. From where? Because they did not exist. There existed only a thousand. They were not created 1,100. So it was, he knew from the beginning that if I ask for 1100, a few people in the village will run short because there will be people in the village who are more muladharistic, more calculated, more thrifty, and those people will not spend their money. But on the contrary, I gave them 10. In the end of the year, they will have 20. And then there will be some airheads some acid heads in the village who will just 
just go like, yeah, yeah, sure, take my coins, yeah. Hey, we'll see the end of the year. Da, da. No careless, no muladhara, no grounding. And in the end of the year, they will look in their purse and they will have only four. And then they will go to the banker and they will say, Baba, I was supposed to give you 11 because I took 10. But actually, I can't even give you those 10. I have got only four. Because the money will migrate from the weak people to the strong people. And the weak people will always lose the money. In every society, there is always somebody sleeping in the railway station, wrapped up in newspapers. There is always somebody who, because their parents didn't love them, or because they were sexually abused when they were children, or because they have worms in their brain, or God knows for what reason, they are weak and losers and confused. And those are the ones who will always lose, whose blood will be sucked. And then the man who created the money, he will say, sure, you owe me seven coins. So you know what? For seven coins, you can give me a sheep. You can give me one of your sheep. Oh, it will be okay. So basically, the banker, he doesn't make any effort except in the beginning to create the money. And then he knows there will never be enough money to repay him. It's calculated that way. And that some people, instead of paying back with the stupid money, which are worth nothing... It's a piece of leather. They will have to pay with a sheep, with a cow, with a house, with a piece of land, with something which has a real value. And in this way, every year, the bank is sucking the blood of the village until in a hundred years, all the houses, all the land, all the sheep, and all the cow, they belong to the bank. So that's why... Borrowing money with interest, usury, is a crime. It's a total crime. But the bankers have been smart in the modern times when people have raised it. They said, yeah, but there is inflation and therefore we'll print some extra money. This is just to confuse you. It's just the abracadabra of the magician who waves his hand so you don't see what he really does in the back in his pocket. No? That's what the banks do. They tell you that uh, it's more complicated. It's not more complicated than that. It's like on a village, on an island. If a hundred, a thousand unitary, monetary units have been created, in the end of the year there will not exist 1100 to be returned to the bank. And then the bank will have to receive a television set, a car, a cow, a house, something... Because people default on their loans. And that's, that's the crime of usury. So the Jews, the Jews, remember, the Jews have a bit of a reputation that they have been rapacious about money and very money savvy and so on. Whatever their reputation was, the Jews, even at the time of Jesus, they had a healthy law which said money is like monopoly. You play with money, but you don't kill people for money or make them sleep in a cardboard box because they don't have money. Money, every seven years, all the debts are forgiven. If you would be cynical, you would say, but let me borrow money from 20 people 
because in seven years I'm going to be forgiven anyway. I'm not going to give anything back. That's very cynical. You are thinking in a dirty way. People had a sense of honor and they said, I borrow 20, I give back 20. But even, even without usury, they did not manage. So today the usury, it's like Thomas Alva Edison. He said there was this project in United States. They built a dam or something, a water dam. And he said in the end of the day, it's only the fucking banks that made all the money. Everybody else just worked hard to sustain themselves, to get a salary, to put bread and butter on the table. Everybody was working for survival. Edison was smart. No, he could see it. He was a scientist. He was an engineer. He could see, you know. And he said everybody worked for survival. And when the dam was finished, the bank had lined their pockets with a lot of money. Only the bank made money out of the whole deal. <clears throat> and the people who are in cahoots with them. So that's why uh, Jesus uses often examples with money of different kinds where he shows some of these principles and he is very healthy about it. So he said, this guy forgave debts. That was not unusual. In Israel, everybody was forgiving debts every seven years. And, but now Jesus was trying to make a point. And he says, to one, he forgave him for 300. And to one, he forgave him for 50. To whom did he do more love? He calls it love. It's an act of love. Like the Jewish prophets have shown, have taught the Jewish community, please don't be egoistic bastards. Yeah, give money, take money, do this, do that. And then not to produce any catastrophe, Every seven years, wipe the slate clean and then start all over. And in this way, nobody will go extremely bankrupt. Nobody will have to commit suicide because they are having financial debts. Nobody will do this or that. You know, it's like money ultimately treat them a little bit like a toy. It's like a monopoly game. You know, play, but don't take it too seriously. So there is something else here. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me water for my feet, but she wet the feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I, I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, oil on my head. It was anointing the hair with some myrrh or other expensive oil. You did not do this, but she has poured perfume on my feet. You would almost say that Jesus is now resentful. He is not. He does not ask for the favor. If the episode with this woman wouldn't have been there, you wouldn't have said Jesus after half an hour going like Simon. I came to your house, you didn't wash my feet, you didn't give me a towel, you didn't put oil on my... Like, you know, this Simon has treated Jesus more like a scholar. He was not a rich man, this was not a very fanciful meeting, it was him talking to a man who was a great prophet, 
who was becoming famous and who had raised the man from the dead and so on. So Simon had been more direct, like had been informal. He didn't bother with formalities. He said, Jesus, come to my house. We'll take lunch. I will ask you a few questions. We'll talk and so on. But he didn't exert special courtesy to Jesus because he didn't yet know who Jesus was. And Jesus did not get flustered by it. He didn't say, oh yeah, you treated me like a vagabond from the street. No, Jesus was humble. And he said, sure, yeah, we can, uh, like I can understand, uh, you know, you came to talk to me, let's go to your house, we'll talk. But then this woman came and she upped the ante, she raised the stakes a lot because she had this extreme behavior. And Jesus says, look, even if you treat me like a chum and so on, you should not fail to see the fact that this woman symbolically, even without realizing it, that this woman has washed my feet, wiped them dry, and put perfume not on my head because she didn't dare to raise her hand and bless me with perfume. She put it on my feet in a humble way. So Jesus wants to tell him, yes, I know in your mind you are saying that this woman is a prostitute and this is very low company that we have here and we were talking about theological subjects and now this woman is coming with her emotional chaos and she repents, she breaks down emotionally here in front of everybody. But wait a second, there is more to it. So Jesus wants to give him a lesson and actually, he says, I have something to tell you. And Simon said very openly, he said, tell me, teacher, rabbi, rabbi would be teacher. No, tell me, rabbi. No. And Jesus is giving him a lesson. And he says, look, you did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, says Jesus, and here... For those of you who studied with me at least once a workshop of Kashmiri Shaivis, here Jesus is 100% in the Shiva consciousness because he acts completely subjectively. Like it's something between him and that soul, the soul of that woman. Like that woman has done something good to him and he is God. He's Shiva. And therefore, in that moment, it's exactly like you light a candle to God or you light some incense to God and God is pleased. If God is pleased, you've got the luck of the pig. You've got the biggest luck in the universe because God can do anything. And if God is pleased, then there is a lot for you in it. Here, He is God. And he actually is pleased. He says, you see, unlike all of you, this woman has had some real devotion. Her heart broke and she cried and she had a change of heart right here by my feet. And then he values this. He says, you know, for me, for me in a direct contact with the soul of this woman, this means a lot. So he says, therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. 
It's very difficult. The expression is on purpose made ambiguous. If you can verify other versions of the Bible, not this translation which I use, which is in modernized English, but you can verify on the King James Version and so on, because they preserve the same ambiguity which exists in the original language in the Greek copy from where it was translated. She loved much who? Me, Jesus, now. She, was, she loved me so much that she started crying and she is so devoted. Or she loved much that when she was practicing prostitution, she was doing it with a certain kind of surrender. This woman had Anahata Chakra in her life. And even if she was a prostitute, there would be in the village other prostitutes who are more cynical, more manipuristic, more manipulative, more interested and kind of controlling and manipulating. But this woman, like, how do you know Jesus? Did you have a periscope in her room when she was, it's like, uh, you know, don't tell, don't talk to me about this. I can see everything. I know people's souls and I'm telling you how things are directly. You know, it's a sort of a divine clairvoyance. So he says, her sins are forgiven for she loved much. Maybe she loved much in her prostitution life and the proof that she has a heart is that when she heard that I am in this village, she came here knowing that people are going to say, boo, go away, what are you doing here? Sinful woman, get out of the house of Simon. You know, and so, like, she came anyway, she made a scene, and she actually cried at the feet of Jesus, like, you know, what a miserable life I had. How did I live my life until now? Sorry, sorry, you know, that's the best I could do with my body and with my life. You know, sorry, but I still have something for God. And you are here coming from God. And I still, you know, and she cried. All I can do is cry. And Jesus immediately valued that. I'm telling you that every guru sees it when people come from the heart. Not necessarily crying. In this case, it's because she felt unworthy and she felt dirty and she wanted to change her life. And all she could do was cry on his feet because she was strengthless. She was like, what she should do? If she was a 35-year-old hooker, what will she do at the age of 35 when she was not married? She had no children. She didn't know any job. Everybody in the neighborhood, five villages around, everybody knew that she was a prostitute. Well, where will her life go? Nowhere. No, she was, her life was going into a hole. Her life was going into darkness. No? And she comes to Jesus like Jesus is her last chance. And she doesn't even know what Jesus is going to do. But like, you know, you are more intelligent than me. I cry on your feet, you know. It's like, whatever you do is welcome. I accept it and so on. So Jesus feels this surrender and the fact that for her, she has little, she gives little, she gives everything. She gives her tears, she gives her soul. And he says, uh, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. In Israel, this did not exist. Moses 
who was a great prophet. Moses never forgave somebody's sins because he did not get this idea. He, it was not put in his mind where he said, now your sins are forgiven or something. Even David, the prophet, David in his Psalms, he says, my sin is forever before my eyes. Oh God, cleanse me of my sins and so on. Like he doesn't think and he's a prophet and he cannot even cleanse himself. So he prays to God. So in Israel, until Jesus showed up, people said only God can deal with sins. And now Jesus, being in a human body, he comes to that place and he says, you know, her sins have been forgiven. Which is already going to make the blood of the people boil. Because the question is, can this guy really do it? Or he is a liar of the worst kind. But what's he saying, you know? He dares to say something which until today was the complete attribute or quality of God. And so, I tell you, says Jesus, her many sins have been forgiven. He speaks in the past. They have been forgiven. For she loved much. And then he says a wonderful turn of sentence. He says, but he who has been forgiven little loves little. It's very profound because he says the person who didn't have much feels righteous, feels great. His ego is bigger. And he says, yeah, maybe God has forgiven me, but not so much because I didn't have such big problems. I was okay to start with. And sure, maybe there is no man who has no sins before God. And God has forgiven me, but God has forgiven me just a little thing. And then, ridiculously, such a man does not feel like expressing gratitude. While this woman, she is coming from a pariah, she is an outcast in her society. And Jesus tells her, her sins have been forgiven. And if this is Mary Magdalene... Later, she became a saint, for God's sake. She was with Jesus when Jesus died. She was in the entourage of the close people of Jesus. In the Gospel of Thomas and in another Gospel, I forgot now which, the Gospel of Peter or another one. She is with the apostles when Jesus teaches them. And they are even shocked because Kabbalah, and this kind of things are mostly made for men. They were in those days. And even today there are traditionalists in Israel who keep these things only for men, strictly for men. And what's this woman doing there? Not only that she's a woman, but she's a prostitute for God's sake. You know, so it's like... And then he simply says she was forgiven. That's why she loves much. Because the gift for which she was forgiven was very big. And she knows she was going to nothingness. She was going in the valley of the shadow of death. And now she is forgiven. So it's like, it's a big thing. Then Jesus said to her, 
you see, he was talking to him, but ritually speaking, this did not have the effect on her. He did not, he had not made conclusion like Jesus, in a certain way, everything he does is also like a ritual. This woman is not very knowledgeable. These men are talking gibberish. He is giving him some parable with one who had 300 and one... And the woman was there listening. But maybe she didn't understand all this oblique talking. And then Jesus needs to kind of put the dot on the eye for her. Like he told them, her sins have been forgiven because she's been forgiven of a lot and she loved a lot. And the people who are forgiven a little... They don't feel so grateful to God. While everybody should be grateful non-stop. Thank you for giving me life. Thank you for calling me to life. Thank you for giving me consciousness and making me a conscious being who can become a Buddha, an enlightened being. There are a lot of reasons to say thank you to God. No, but people, they say, eh, yeah, everybody got it. That doesn't mean you should be less grateful. For it. And then he turns to her and she says, Your sins are forgiven. Like it's like a mantra. He was talking to Simon, but now he had to deal with her to put the final dot. And he puts the final dot. He turns to her and he says, Because what I said, I don't know if you heard or understood, but now let me look in your eyes and hit you with it. Your sins are forgiven. Like he says, you came to me, you cried on my feet, now I look in your eyes and I'm telling you, your sins are forgiven. This is how it was with Jesus. People say, but weren't there in that village other people who deserved such a favor? Yeah, but they didn't come and cry on the feet of Jesus. Jesus, as I told to those of you who joined Kashmiri Shaivas, he lives in the consciousness of Shiva, which means he is totally subjective. He is here and now, himself. Oh, maybe there is somebody in Damascus who is a great person. I don't care about those who live in Damascus. If they come to me and they give me a hug, then they exist because I interact with them. But if I don't interact with them, it's like there are shadows on a wall. It's like there is a cinematographic projection on a screen all around me, and that's the world. But those who come one meter from me and they shake hands with me, those exist. I interact with them. And everything starts from him, because he is God. He is the center of the reality. He is the center of the universe in his reality. <clears throat> and that's why who says, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this one who even forgives, who even forgives sins? Because again, they didn't know that a human being, or at least somebody who looks like a human being, is in a human body. No, because we cannot really say about Jesus that he was fully a human being, that somebody forgives sins. This is one change which Jesus brought in the collective subconscious mind of planet Earth. 18 centuries later, Ramakrishna was doing this currently. 
Ramakrishna decided at some point enough is enough. I have awakened some people, I have shown them and so on. And then he started taking karma from people. And he confessed that even if you poked your head in his room accidentally, he would say, give me some karma. You know, he would not say, but he would actually do it. You know, people didn't know. He declared it at the final events of his life. So how did Ramakrishna do that? One of my teachers, Swami Gitananda from Pondicherry, when I met him, he actually objected to Ramakrishna dying of cancer and this. And I was like, am I having a bad dream? Like this is Swami Gitananda Giri. And he is talking bad about Ramakrishna who died of a cancer. Like there are 10 authors who wrote the life of Ramakrishna. And all of them wrote very clearly that at some point Ramakrishna started taking upon himself vast amounts of karma. And therefore he died of cancer. So his cancer was not his cancer. His cancer was the stuff, the misery from other people around him. And I told him, why do you talk like this about Ramakrishna? Because everybody knows that he took karma. And then Swami Gitananda, who was a very sharp person and answer, he looked at me and pointed the finger and he says, Right, you show me one paragraph in any Hindu scripture which says that gurus or masters or whatever are supposed to take upon themselves the karma of other people. And I realized that he was right. He was a fanatic Hindu, he was a fundamentalistic Hindu, and he was right. In the Hindu scriptures, this has not been updated. It came from Jesus, and the Indian gurus just took it, and they said, yes, if Jesus did that, then we also have to contribute to this compassionate effort of helping our disciples, and so on, in this way. But it is not written in the Upanishads and in the Vedas. And Gitananda said, show me the Veda. Show me the Upanishad where this is written. And literally speaking, he was right. But he demonstrated that he was a bit narrow-minded because he did not understand the latest updates. So when Jesus came and do did this, the whole world got it. Jesus was just the first one, the one who gave the example. But then everybody else started doing it. For example, in the 5th century or 6th century, Nagarjuna and other Buddhist masters, they changed Buddhism into the new form of Buddhism, the one called Mahayana Buddhism, the one which in Thailand they call it the Chinese Buddhism, the Chinese temples. And Mahayana Buddhism has introduced the Bodhisattva vow and the ideal of the Bodhisattva, that it's not only that you want to have enlightenment for yourself, but that you have to think about other people with compassion, because they also are on the path, and they are searching for the light, and all that, and that you should take a vow to be compassionate to the whole universe. This did not exist at the time of Buddha, this does not exist one century before Christ. It existed only after Christ, 
after Christ, two, three, four, five hundred years passed, and then Indian gurus, Buddhist gurus, and others, they started borrowing the same thing. I don't know if because some Christians wrote it, or because it was floating telepathically in the collective subconscious mind, and Jesus had brought this idea for the whole humanity. One way or another, after Jesus lived, everybody got it. Everybody realized it, and it started becoming part of it. So that's why this is very relevant, that Jesus comes with this thing, and he starts saying, your sins are forgiven. And sometimes, like with this woman, how can you say? She cried. She had a moment of change the heart. She is probably not the first sinner who stopped sinning. Like there must have been many thieves and pickpockets who said, now I don't steal anymore. I'm sorry. I've had a miserable life. It stops now. There must have been a lot of prostitutes and other tax collectors and others who said enough is enough. Today it stops. No? And they changed their life. But changing your life doesn't mean that your karma has gone away. Even for this woman, she stops, she says, okay, no more prostitution. Today, it stops. Yeah, but what you have done the last 15 years is still on your shoulders, you know. That has not gone away. You still have to deal with that. But Jesus goes the full Monte. And he says, your sins are forgiven. Like, whatever you have done for 15 years, not to mention for 15 lifetimes ago, it's gone. Now, like this, just because I said it, just because I will it, and I'm giving you a message from God, your sins are forgiven. Then the people around say, who the heck is this guy who goes around and forgives sins? Sometimes they could see it. Remember, those of you who are in this season, I read the example of the man who was paralyzed on a stretcher. And Jesus said, are you crazy? What is easy to say? Your sins are forgiven or stand up, walk, go home. And then he says, stand up, pick up your stretcher, go home. No, and then he says, see, his sins are forgiven. But with this woman, she was not an invalid she was not, you know, it's just an act like you can believe it or not. Like Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And somebody goes and says, yeah, yeah, sure, right. You know, it's like I don't believe it. Or how can you demonstrate that they are? Okay, that woman had a change of heart. She was crying and she was in what we could call in modern psychological language in a state of catharsis. She was having a super purification of her heart. So maybe she felt like a stone was lifted off her heart and she felt free and she felt different. But the people who were in the room, they have just seen a woman creating an embarrassing scene and then Jesus telling her, because you've been so brave, your sins are forgiven. It's like, okay, maybe, but maybe not. Can we believe that? But what if we don't believe that? So they are asking, like, who's this guy who uses words so easily, you know? These are big words. You should be very careful because before you say such gigantic things. Because what if it's not true? Jesus said 
to the woman. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This alone, this, this statement alone is worth a lecture by itself. Because Jesus, at least three, four, five times throughout the Gospels, he has a case where somebody is exactly like this on the verge, and they get something, and then Jesus says, Pum, your sins are forgiven, your life is changed, I bless you, this or that. And then he says, your faith has saved you. Because this woman, this woman had not seen him before. This woman didn't have any proof. She had a sort of a intuitive presence that this is a great man. But there were other great men. There was John the Baptist just 50 kilometers away. No, because I said Israel is not such a big land, you know. So it's like this woman could have gone. Maybe she went and saw John the Baptist. Maybe she had been. We are not being told if she had gone. Maybe John the Baptist baptized her. Because that's what he was doing to everybody. And maybe she didn't feel the catharsis. She felt too dirty. She felt too guilty. She felt she was not worth it. But you see, this woman was having something. She was hoping. She was waiting. She was believing. She was desperate for it. And then somebody says, there is this guy called Jesus. He's in the house of Simon. And then she takes... The $1,000 Chanel 5, one of the precious things which she had in her house, and she goes and pours it over Jesus' feet, and there she has a crisis, a mystical crisis, and she cries, and she realizes something very important. And Jesus tells her, it's your faith that has saved you. Because if she didn't have the faith, she wouldn't have been so crazy as to go to the house of Simon. But like she said, that guy is from God. He's the only one who can save me. So even if they throw rotten tomatoes at me, I'm going to go and repent at the feet of that man. So Jesus says, that's what saved you. The fact that you had this insistence in coming and seeing me. After you came to see me, all the rest are more or less natural. But the thing is that your faith has saved you. How did she believe that going and creating an embarrassing scene in the house of Simon, who apparently was a bit of an asshole, like he didn't value her. He said, that's a sinful woman. What's she doing in my house? Spoiling the visit of this rabbi called Jesus, you know. That's exactly what we needed now. Stupid Mary Magdalene coming and making a scene or whatever, you know. He was not very friendly to her. And she knew. And she went desperately there because she was choking. She was choking. She felt, I have to do this. And then Jesus says, your faith has saved you. Because that's the truth. She insisted. She insisted in a way. And then Jesus says all the rest, like whoever comes to me and does what you have done will be saved. The problem is that people don't believe to come to me and they sit at home wondering, should I go? Should I not go? 
Jesus says, your faith saves you. Your faith saves you. So, it's a very beautiful paragraph here, a very beautiful story in which we see this amazing thing. Some people cannot forgive it because it basically says if you have been practicing prostitution or any other moral things, whatever, you've been stealing, you've been doing other and other things, if you've been practicing it for a long time, it shouldn't be possible for one like Jesus to come and say, oh, you are asking for it, so be it. Like, what the fuck? If you have been a torsionist in a concentration camp and 500,000 Jews died under your hand, can Jesus just kill it all like this? Some people cannot understand. They say, yeah, but uh, I don't think everybody, not everybody should be forgiven. That's because you still have a feeling for revenge. Like there is this man and he's a pedophile and he abused sexually 35 children. So Jesus, if you forgive people around, please don't have the fucking cheek and forgive that one. Because that one is a notorious pedophile and we want to see him biting the dust. But Jesus doesn't. Jesus doesn't care. He says, the more I forgive you from your debt, the more you will love God and you will be grateful. So Jesus is going to go to extremes and say, yeah, even if it's much, it can be forgiven. For many people, this is disturbing because this is like as long as you believe in karma or as long as you believe in the justice of God, you are happy somewhere. You say, yeah, yeah. There are many people who do fucking things. You know, like they attacked Agama. They wrote bad things about Agama. But <laughs> they are going to hell. All of them. <laughs> they will bite the dust. You know, Jesus is not like that. Jesus is not like that. Jesus doesn't... I mean, there is a divine justice. And that divine justice affects probably 99% of the population of the world. And sometimes that divine justice can be very hard. Remember the antique episodes with Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. 500,000 people were wiped out like this by the divine anger, by the divine sense of justice. So it's not that there is no divine sense of justice. There is, and it's tough and when the justice goes pranking, there is, how will you stop it? Who will stop Sodom and Gomorrah? Abraham tried. Abraham tried. The angels of God told him, we go to Sodom and Gomorrah because we heard that something terrible is happening there. And he said, what? And if they said, if it's so terrible as we heard, we're going to wipe them out. But they were still neighbors of Abraham, you know. And Abraham says, but God, what if there are 50 good people in that city? He starts bargaining in a very Jewish way. He bargains with God. He says, if there are 50 people in 500,000, 
And guess what? The angel of God loves this style. Of, and the angel of God, which is supposed to be one of the Trinity, one of the Holy Triad, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, tells him, you know what? If we find 50 righteous people, we'll save the city. We'll allow the city to continue because of those 50 people. And then Abraham, like a real Jew, he starts cranking it down. He says, but what if there are 45? And God says, okay. If there are 45, it should still work. And he says, but what if there are 40? And he bargains God down to five. In which God in the end says, okay, Abraham, if I go there and find five nice people, I save the whole city because of those five. Like sometimes in this world, there are cities that survive because there are five righteous people or ten righteous people in those cities. That's how the divine consciousness works. No? And the angels of God go and they find one righteous people because in those days they didn't count the children and I'm sorry for the modern feminists, they didn't count women as well. They counted only men. Men were people. So they found one man with his family, with his wife and family. And then man was called Lot. And then the angels told to Lot, walk towards the mountains and don't look back. Because hell is coming to earth right now. And he did. So they saved Lot and the cities went down. Because they couldn't find five. They couldn't find even five. So... It's the same thing here with this faith that saves. You know, it's, it's, we started from this saying of Jesus who says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So uh, a lot of karma can be forgiven like this. Like this. There is no limit. I remember... Many, many years ago, when there were the first three series of the Star Wars, you know, in the first three Star Wars, there was Luke Skywalker fighting Darth Vader, and Darth Vader was, by coincidence, his own father. And in the, he has to fight his own father. And in the end, in the very last second, Darth Vader has a change of heart, and he just hits the Emperor and sends the Emperor to hell. And then Darth Vader, because he did 99% of bad things, and in the last day he did something good, in the 11th hour he is saved. And I read blogs on internet where people were angry that, yeah, yeah, sure, this guy was a dark asshole all his life, and now he just gets forgiven in a trifle like this, you know. And they made comparisons. They say it's like somebody has been a doctor in Auschwitz and then you just, Jesus comes and forgives them. It's not fair. They have to suffer. They have to, you know, people don't think like God. For Jesus, the thinking is completely different because he is in this state of consciousness. So Jesus says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Go in peace was the Jewish salutation for the righteous religious people. Shalom, peace, you know, go with peace. 
No, Jesus says now you are a member, a normal member of the society and all your sins have been forgiven. Of course, normal people will find it hard to accept, but for Jesus, things are going that way. And because we still have a few minutes to go, I, again, I could comment a lot about faith, how faith is coming from Ajna Chakra and how faith is exactly what is given to you. In India, they say your faith is written on your forehead. No, it's not really written on your forehead, but it can be seen because it's like part of your way to be. I remember my first Hatha Yoga teacher, he used to say, it, there is a clear statistic which shows that the people in traffic in Europe that die most are the motorcycle riders. The motorcycle riders have the highest degree of dying on the road. So he said, when a man has a bad karma, he buys himself a motorcycle. Like in the moment when you buy yourself a motorcycle, you start asking for it. But some people say, that's not what I thought when I bought my motorcycle. When I bought my motorcycle, I thought it's cool. It's cool, and the yoga guru sees you with your motorbike and says it's written all over your forehead. Violent death. No, It's you, you are asking for it. You are looking for it. That's why we are asking people here in Pangan, where almost everybody drives scooters and motorbikes, Please drive carefully. For example, right now, there is a very, very bad astrological circumstance for everybody. And accidents of the head are very easily possible for a week or two. So in the next two weeks, be specially careful when you drive your motorbike. Drive 10 kilometers less per hour than what you normally do. Love yourselves a little bit. Take care of yourselves. Protect yourselves a little bit. No? So that's why I say, a faith saves you. Because your faith says, I'm going to live my life like this. I believe in this and this, therefore I live my life like this. But for some other people, no, they say, I believe in living dangerously. Okay, you live dangerously, you die dangerously. I remember having read a Chinese horoscope many years ago, primitive one, not by far not the best which I've seen in my life, a sort of a childish level Chinese horoscope, and it said the people who are born under the Chinese sign of the tiger, they usually have wild deaths, because the tiger person is a person that is very wild at heart, and it said there these people are never dying in their own bed. No, like these are not the kind of people who get 85 years old and then they die like a grandfather in their bed slowly. Probably they will die before because they have a chili in their ass which pushes them to do outrageous things and then they will probably die because of that. And the example, the example which that horoscope gave was John Fitzgerald Kennedy because he was a tiger in the Chinese horoscope. And I said it's like this. These people do wild things. 
Either they have a Cuban missile crisis, or they fuck Marilyn Monroe, or God knows what else they do. They live wild. And because they live wild, they'll probably not die in their own bed. Huh? Like Kennedy did not. So, your faith saved you. Because it's your faith. How do you believe that you are going to live your life? Like the Indian sadhus who say, Om Shanti Shanti Shanti. Like all I do, I am in search of peace. My life wants to be peace. No, no, I want to be a social activist in South Africa. Sure, go like a social activist to South Africa and die. I'm a medicine some frontier and I'm going to Syria to... Yeah, sure, another one with an itch in his ass who will probably take a stray bullet somewhere. You're asking for it. It's a matter of faith. What do you believe in? I believe that if I sit like Buddha... I'm going to spread peace on earth. Then how many bullets am I going to get? Not much. It's true that spiritual people can get other types of persecution, but not necessarily this one that you die a violent death because of accidents or other things. You know, like it's difficult to presume that the monks in this monastery near us here, they will die a violent death. They wake up at six o'clock, they go and beg their food, they eat, they meditate, they listen to some sermons, they spend all the day in the monastery. You don't see them much vagabonding around in the island. Their life is like, I'm practicing peace in my life. So, uh, what Jesus says here is very beautiful because he says, ultimately, the choices that you make in your life are going to influence what's happening to you. And he says clearly, your faith has saved you. You have chosen to see me. That was a damn good choice. That was a real good choice. You saw me, and look what good thing happened to you. I just got well disposed about you, and I said, your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. Great. That was the best day in the life of that woman, no? When she met Jesus, and she well disposed him, and he said, your sins are forgiven. Let's stop here. I don't want to start the next parable, also because I have some physiological needs which press me. So let's keep it a bit shorter tonight because of this. Thank you all for joining. Thank you for resisting this. I will meet you in the next meetings here. Remember, as long as I'm here in the island, I do the satsangs. The program was done because somebody thought I might leave the island for a month and not be here. But I'm here, so tell to everybody I do the satsangs and the Q&As. And because you cannot ask questions during the satsangs, then I will have questions. You can ask me questions if you join the Q&As. With this, let us finish for tomorrow.